you really have to recognize that the people around you have value to add and that you may be the person in charge, you have the vision, you have the responsibility, but if you're not able to make the people who you're leading feel valued and feel like their input matters, then you're going to lose them. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, we welcome Ambassador Susan Rice to Skimmed from the Couch. Ambassador Rice was National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. Before serving as National Security Advisor, she was the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, as well as a member of the Cabinet. Prior to the Obama administration, Ambassador Rice was a fellow at the Brookings Institute and began her career in foreign policy under President Bill Clinton. So many questions. Also, Ambassador Rice has just published her book, Tough Love. The title references her parents' approach to raising her, which prepared her for a career in world politics, and I'm guessing a lot more. The memoir has been called both highly personal and unflinchingly honest. It's landed her a spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. We are thrilled to get the opportunity to speak with her about her historic career. Ambassador Rice, welcome to the couch. Thanks so much. It's really great to be with you both. Thank you. Very excited. Okay, so let's jump into it. First question, we ask everybody, skim your resume for us. Okay, scholar. I've written and published academic work on national security and foreign policy when I was at the Brookings Institution as a foreign policy scholar. Um, I've also been a management consultant, diplomat, uh, negotiator, national security expert. That's the first time we've had those bullets on this show. What is not on your Wikipedia or LinkedIn that we... Danielle dropped her microphone. Sorry. In a very important question. That was a literal mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. That was funny, Danielle. Thank you. Uh, What is not on your official biography or or Wikipedia that we should know about you? Well, I mean, there's a lot. But one of the most important things, if not the most important things, is that I'm a mom. Uh, I have two kids, one in high school now and one in college. And I'm a wife, and I'm a proud daughter of two parents who had a phenomenal impact on me. Um, So family to me is hugely important. What does a typical day look like for you now? Now? Uh, Well, now when I'm not on book tour, normally. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's so much better. Do you sleep in now? (laughs) (laughs) Comparatively, like I can get up at 7, you know, as opposed to 5.30 or 6. I can work out and take my time doing it, not being rushed. I can put on my yoga pants and my fleece and very leisurely eat my breakfast, which is usually like fruit and yogurt or something like that with a lot of coffee. And then it depends on what my day is about. When I was writing the book, I'd sit down and focus on that. I spend time at the School of International Service at American University where I mentor students. Um, I do some speaking. I do some travel. I'm on the board of Netflix and I do some other private sector things. So it depends on what the 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 deal of the day is, but for the most part, the great thing is I'm in charge of my own schedule. I don't have to get dressed up except when I'm on book tour. 
you said, you know, you can travel. I'm sure you have traveled so much, but a lot of it has been in your professional life. Where's the last place you traveled to for fun? Uh, abroad or anywhere? Anywhere. The last foreign trip we took was to Peru with the family in August, which was really fun because it's been a while given that the kids have jobs and camp and whatever that we've actually been able to do a cool foreign trip together. Is there a place you haven't gone that's been on your bucket list? Oh, gosh, lots. You want me to do a short yeah. summary? Yeah. I would think you've been everywhere. I've been a lot of places, but not everywhere. And there's a lot of places I still want to go. Thailand. You haven't, you haven't uh, been to Thailand? No, I you haven't been have to Thailand. To I haven't been to Morocco. I think that's so surprising. Czech Republic. Wow. Huh. Norway. Wow. I haven't been to Ireland. I've been to the big places. Yeah. I've been, you know, I've been mm-hmm. to China. I've been to Russia. I've been to Japan. I've been yeah. to Indonesia. I've been to many parts of Africa, most of Western Europe, a good bit of South America. But I still want to go to Chile. I want to go back to Argentina. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I want to go back to Brazil. We should do a little girl's I've been go. to Chile. You should. It, it's Amazing. You talked about family being really important to you, and that's obviously a huge inspiration from the book. The title of the book is A Nod to Your Parents' Parenting Style. Tell us about your parents. Well, I had two really wonderful parents. Both have passed, unfortunately. But my dad was born in segregated South Carolina around 1920. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, had been a slave. He fought in the Union Army in South Carolina during the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, my great-grandfather rather miraculously got a primary education, became a teacher, and then got his divinity degree, uh, went to college. And after college, he, uh, and after his early professional career, he established a school in New Jersey uh, called the Bordentown School. And from the late 1880s until 1955, that school educated generations of African Americans, both in vocational and technical skills and in college preparatory skills. And, you know, Albert Einstein and Mary McLeod Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt all came to this school, which was really quite extraordinary. And that legacy of service, of education, was what my father was raised with. But Born in this oppression of segregation and Jim Crow, he really was struggling to figure out how he could fulfill his potential. During World War II, he served with the Tuskegee Airmen and in the segregated Army Air Force. And he had the horrible experience of not being able to eat in restaurants off of base, but seeing German POWs being served. And so he knew that he wanted to become somebody. He was brilliant. And after college, he decided, and after the war, to leave the South, go out to California. He got his PhD in economics at the University of California at Berkeley. And then he spent his professional career working his way up. He worked in the Treasury Department. He worked uh, at the World Bank in a senior position. And ultimately, he was a governor of the Federal Reserve. And I'll come back to him, but I learned from my father just extraordinary perseverance and basically believing in yourself even when society and everybody around you is telling you that you're not worthy or you can't. My mom came from a totally different background. She was the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica that came to Portland, Maine, of all places, in 1912. And my grandparents on her side had no education. One was a janitor, one was a maid. And yet, like so many immigrants, they came with the American dream and saved and worked very hard and sent all five of their kids to college. Two of my uncles became doctors, one a university president, one an optometrist, and then along came my mother, the baby. And 
She was valedictorian of her high school class. She was a debate champion. She went on to Radcliffe College and now part of Harvard and was the president of the entire student body, graduated magna cum laude. And because she almost didn't get to go to college because she was denied a scholarship because she was black, but eventually because her principal and her debate coach went to bat on her behalf, she was able to receive another source of money. She made the fight to enable college to be affordable to low-income Americans her life's passion. And she was known as the mother of the Pell Grant program because she was instrumental in establishing and sustaining this extraordinary program that's allowed 80 million Americans to go to college. My mom was a badass. And, you know, in 1950, when she graduated from high school as an African-American woman in a very white state of Maine, um, she went on through her career to be a pioneer. And so these two parents who were wonderful, but had a horrible marriage, which we can come back to, really taught me to fight and to be strong and to not be dismissed or diminished or discounted by others. How is career talked about in your household growing up? I mean, I had a working mom and a professional mother from the earliest days of my life. And so on the one hand, it was an example and an expectation that you you can work and have family at the same time. It was rare, frankly, at that time, this would have been the late 60s, early 70s, for the mothers of my classmates, for example, to be working outside of the home in a professional capacity. So I had her example and I had my father's example of, you know, rising up in government and in private sector. We were expected to excel. We were expected to work hard and do our best. We were also taught that, you know, we could be whatever we wanted to be. They weren't saying you got to be this or you got to be that. But the fundamental message was whatever you choose to be, do your best at it and make it something that's about somebody other than just yourself. When I hear you talk about your parents and them as role models to you and your family, I think about it two ways. On one hand, I'm like, that is incredible and amazing. And they obviously created such a strong legacy in you. Second thing I think of is that's got to be a lot of pressure at times. Did you feel that growing up? Well, it's funny. Not really. Not in the sense of I was scared that I wasn't going to meet their expectations or that they were going to get mad at me. Well, they had a, a really important saying that they sort of banged into me and my brother, which was do your best and your best will be good enough. And what they meant by that was, you know, don't be a slackard, don't be half-assed, but if you do your best and it's not, you do badly, that's okay. You are allowed to fail. You're just not allowed not to try your best. And so they gave us this sort of confidence and safety net. They'll be behind us. We can take risks. We can do something that we may not be good at, but just do your best. The, The message was you know, don't be lame. And that was kind of their version of tough love. It doesn't mean that they expected us to always get A's or be the best person on the basketball team or whatever the the thing was. But where they gave us a hard time was when we sort of cut corners. Was it in the realm of your imagination that you would have the jobs that you ended up having and serve in the way that you ended up serving? The particular jobs that I had were not in the realm of my imagination because I didn't know yeah, when I was young, that I was going to be interested in foreign policy and national security. I didn't know the field well enough to say this is what I want to be. But I knew that I was likely to do something and do it to the best of my abilities and that it would be an ambitious objective. I mean, I knew growing up, I was lucky to go to school in Washington, D.C. at very high quality private schools. 
And many of the kids I went to school with were the sons and daughters of members of Congress and senators and ambassadors. And so I was raised in an environment where people were pretty prominent and at high levels of their field. And so I expected that I would somehow end up doing something of importance, but I just didn't know what it would be. You had a unique mentor early on. A lot of people look for mentors. Your mentor is, is not the every woman's mentor, <laughs> Secretary Madeleine Albright. How did she become your mentor? And how well, old were you? Well, it's funny. I've known Secretary Albright, Madeline. What do you call her? Madeline. Do you call I her call Madeline? Her Madeline. Um, not Maddie. But no. <laughs> she's not no. Maddie. Um, and she sometimes calls me little Susie Rice, which I hate. Aww. But uh, I've known her since I can remember, since I was like four or five. Wow. And the reason is, this was long before she was the icon that, mm-hmm. that she is today. She was the mother of girls that I went to school with. So she and my mom became good friends. And in fact, they served together on the board of our elementary school. Madeline was the chairwoman of the board. My mom was on the board. I cannot imagine being on this board. This is a very <laughs> intense board. Yeah. And Alice Rivlin, who some people will recall, amazing woman, she was a... OMB director and a vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. She too oh was God. on this board as a mother of oh kids that I went PTA to school. President. <laughs> my dad and Madeline's former husband played tennis every Sunday together. So our families kind of grew up together. After the tennis match on Sunday, the two families would often go out to lunch at a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore in Washington called Hamburger Hamlet. Oh, I loved Hamburger Hamlet growing up. <laughs> Did you? Yes. Are you from the D.C. area? I'm from Chicago, but we had that. So then fast forward, I grow up. I go to graduate school in England at Oxford. And at this point, you know, she's served in the Carter administration. She's a professor of foreign policy at Georgetown. She's a big deal. It's now 1988. And I want to work on the Democratic presidential campaign as a graduate student. And she's one of Governor Michael Dukakis's senior foreign policy advisors. And she kindly opened the door for me to be a junior staffer on that campaign. And that was really my first exposure to politics in an electoral sense and to the work of foreign policy formulation. We're going to get into your career obviously, but I, I want to stick with you growing up. You were shaking the hands of Madeline Albright, who even if she wasn't the icon that she is today, I'm sure there were people around you that were in that level. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think that that was weird? What was the expectation that your parents put on you? I mean, I had to interact with other parents, uh, people I went to school with, so like Vice President Mondale or Senator Ted Kennedy. These were people who were parents of people I went to school with and many others. So the expectation in my household was you have a firm handshake and you look somebody in the eye and you're polite and you introduce yourself. You're ready to engage in conversation if that opportunity comes. And as I write in the book, uh, Tough Love also, you know, our family dinner discussions were often really robust, substantive debates about the issues of the day. I listened to my father and my uncles argue when we were really young about race or politics or whatever. And so I had gained an early comfort with sort of robust argument that wasn't angry argument, but it was substantive argument. And then by the time my brother and I were, you know, six, seven, eight, we would have discussions at our dinner table about Vietnam or Watergate or man on the moon, you name it. And those were really 
interesting conversations where we were expected to hold our own and have a perspective and to argue it with confidence. That was unusual. And I think that also translated into, you know, having that firm handshake and looking somebody in the eye when you have the privilege to meet them. Diplomacy. It is a key thing in a lot of office places, no matter where you work. You've attributed your parents' divorce, you write about how contentious it was, to helping pave the way for your career in diplomacy. My parents, as I mentioned, great people, crappy marriage. And by the time I was sort of seven or eight, it got really ugly. And lots of screaming and yelling, lots of fighting, things being thrown, and it was quite scary. And there would often be times in the middle of the night where I would be awakened by the screaming and yelling and come downstairs and sort of sneak and poke my head around the corner and try to figure out, you know, how serious is it? And if it looked like it was getting out of control, I'd either try to break it up physically if necessary, but more often talk them to reason, sort of mediating in effect, playing the role of a little firefighter. And so it was that mediation, which is an element of diplomacy, that that I learned inadvertently at an early age. But I had no idea, you know, when I was a kid that I wanted to go into foreign policy or national security. I knew I wanted to go into the work of government, and I knew I, I cared about policy. But at an early age, I thought it was more likely to be domestic policy. You were the second youngest person and first African-American woman to represent the U.S. at the U.N. You were also one of the youngest assistant secretaries of state ever. Do you ever get sick of hearing one of the first, one of the youngest? You know, I think it can get a little tiring. But I think what's more important is, you know, what do you do with that opportunity? I tell a story in the book about my first encounter with Ambassador Richard Holbrook, which was one of a, a few that I recount that were rather contentious. But For our listeners, would you like to... <laughs> I'll tell the story. But this is why I'm not so impressed by the first and the, you know, the youngest and all this. I'm the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. I was 32 when I started in that role. I was the youngest Regional Assistant Secretary of State at the time. And I was wrestling with the entirety of, the, of Sub-Saharan Africa, which was going through a lot of crises at the time. And one day, I'm up on Capitol Hill meeting with members of Congress as part of my job. And I get a phone call from my assistant who says, Ambassador Richard Holbrook is in your office, and he wants you to come back right now to meet with him. And I said, well, tell him I'm up on the Hill, and let's schedule an appointment. And he was at the time nominated but not yet confirmed to be ambassador to the UN. So he had a, a lot of time and, I think, frustration for the months that he was waiting. My secretary, she said, he's not leaving. And I said, well, make sure you don't take anything, and I'll get back when I get there. I get back to my office, having finished my meetings on the Hill, and there he is, sure enough, sitting on my couch. I can't remember, to be honest, whether he actually had his feet on my coffee table, but the body language to the equivalent of that. And I go in, as I, as I said, never met him before, sit down and say, what's so urgent that you know you had to sit here and wait for me to return and we couldn't schedule a meeting? And he said to me, I dislike you already because you've broken my record as the youngest regional assistant secretary of state. <laughs> I looked at him like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and that was the high point of our relationship. <laughs> it went downhill from there. Um, and I relate later on a story that resulted in me uh, having to express my thoughts through a gesture that <laughs> it's, it's interesting. is not exactly polite. 
It's interesting to hear in a group of <laughs> diplomats. <laughs> like, How undiplomatic yeah. some people could be. Yeah. The internal kind of, uh, yeah, not politicking, but the... Jockeying yeah. or, or backstabbing or, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like any other field. People have egos and ambitions. Mm-hmm. Some people are bullies, which in my experience he proved to be, as well as also a pretty talented diplomat. Obviously, your examples are not the every woman's example, but they're really relatable for so many of us in office environments, which is what happens when you're the newbie on the block? What happens when you're the youngest in the room? What happens when there's politics at play and people are politicking? For our listeners, how would you advise handling that? Well, look, you know, particularly when you're a woman and uh, in a male-dominated environment, and particularly if you happen to be younger, (laughs) Uh, and all of the above, in my case, young, female, African-American, um, they're going to inevitably be people who don't think you belong and want to make it harder for you. And I experienced that early in my career. And I thankfully had the example of uh, my parents who basically taught me not to let other people define me for me. And my dad famously and often said, don't take crap off of anybody. Don't let anybody give you a hard time and not push back. When I found myself in those situations, what I tried to do is what I was raised to do. One, do my best, have confidence, not let anybody allow me to believe that I don't belong. But then also, and this is what I had to learn a bit the hard way, have some humility. Recognize that there may be people who have more experience that you can beneficially learn from. When I was Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, which was one of these extraordinary growth opportunities where I made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot of lessons of value. One of the lessons I learned is that leadership is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. If you're successful, you're bringing other people along. And that means being willing to listen, being confident and strong, but also humble. How do you then manage up from that? When I think about who you've had to manage up to, (laughs) two presidents, some secretaries of state, Yeah. yeah. Who has been the hardest person to manage up to? And what are, your tr- <laughs> what are your tricks of managing up? I've actually had really good bosses, I have to say. Uh, you sound just like yeah. a diplomat. No, no, I'm honest. How do you manage up? Well, first of all, be willing to tell your bosses the truth and give them the unvarnished information that they may or may not want to hear. And you give them your best judgments, which they may or may not agree with. And you do it with logic and a cogent argument and with confidence. And the reason I say I had good bosses is because every one of them welcomed that. The people who I immediately reported to, the National Security Advisor when I was young, uh, the Secretary of State, the presence of the United States, they were good people. They were good bosses who actually were supportive and always made me feel that my input was valued, even when it might be something they rejected. How did you define your management style initially? I think at points you were managing men that were decades older. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I, I struggled with this, and I write about it in the book. You know, this is at the same period we're talking about when I was 32, 33 Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, responsible for all of our embassies and all of our ambassadors on the African continent, so some 48 countries. The senior people who were reporting to me were 20 to 30 years my senior, uh, mostly career foreign service officers and mostly white men. And there was a lot of skepticism and, and even resentment of me in that role. 
and some of it was unfounded, I think for sure. Others, other part of it was, you know, they had years of experience on me. And what I learned is that you really have to recognize that the people around you have value to add and that you may be the person in charge. You have the vision, you have the responsibility, but if you're not able to make the people who you're leading feel valued and feel like their input matters, then you're going to lose them. In worst case, they'll turn against you. But it makes it a lot harder to bring a team to a common objective. And when you're in government or in management and in the private sector, and you know you may not be long in a particular role, you want the, the initiatives that you implemented to stick, to endure. And they're very unlikely to stick if you've broken all this crockery along the way and bruised a lot of egos and the people who will stay have every opportunity to undo it. The challenge is to be open-minded, to be listening, to be a collaborative leader that makes other people feel valued, but still to be strong and decisive and to own responsibility and to lead with integrity. The worst thing in a leader is somebody who takes all the credit and you know, rejects all the blame. So a leader who says, look, I own this, I've got your back, and if it goes wrong, it's on me. That's what you want to be. So it is holiday time, which is great because you get to see family, eat delicious food, just relax at home. It also is the time when you have to actually pack to go home for the holidays. And I know a lot of us are guilty ahem, ahem, of overpacking. Yes. Carly is definitely guilty of overpacking. Thank I know you, that was that was that's aimed not at me. part of this read. I am as well. It's impossible to go home. I travel to Chicago, and every single year I have to sit on my suitcase in order to close it. But you know what? At the end of the day, I have everything I need, and part of that is having the right bra that works with everything. Danielle, how do you get the right bra? That's a great question. I am so happy that Third Love has their Fit Finder quiz. But are they comfortable? They are, and over 40 million women have taken the quiz to date. But what if the bra doesn't fit or I don't like it? Returns and exchanges are free and easy. Seriously, this is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll own. Also, in all seriousness, they're a wonderful company that donates all of their gently used return bras to women in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the U.S. So far, they've donated over $15 million in bras. Third Love knows there is a perfect bra for everyone, and right now they are offering our very lucky listeners 15% off your very first order. Go to thirdlove.com skim to find your perfect bra and get 15% off. That's thirdlove.com skim for 15% off your first purchase today. We're going to switch gears um, and talk about a pivotal moment in your career, which was around the attacks of Benghazi in 2012. For our listeners, just a quick skim. On September 11th, 2012, a U.S. diplomatic post in Benghazi, Libya, was attacked. Armed militants broke into the compound, and four Americans were killed, including Ambassador Chris Stevens. Initially, U.S. officials said the attack were the result of spontaneous protests, but later said the attacks were a planned act of terrorism. You at this time, what was your role? I was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And who was our secretary of state? Hillary Clinton. 
Benghazi was an enormous turning point in your career, and you really became a household name for so many of our listeners. You became a central focus of the controversy around how the story had shifted around the telling of what had happened. What was it like for you during those weeks and ultimately over a year or so? Months. Years. Uh, months, years. To bear the brunt of criticism that was about something much larger than you and your role. Yeah, it was very hard. Um, so I was accused of being a liar, of being incompetent and untrustworthy by Republican members of Congress, by right-wing commentators. And there's still a whole cottage industry out there that associates me with alleged lies on Benghazi. To make a very long story short, eight congressional committees have investigated all aspects of Benghazi, including the one that was led by Trey Gowdy that went on for years and years. And every one of them concluded that neither I nor anybody in the Obama administration had deliberately misled the American people. But the information that I provided several days after the attack, which had been provided to me by the intelligence community and was our best current understanding of what had happened, as is often the case, changed down the road in some important respects. It turned out there was not an actual demonstration outside of our facility in Benghazi. But because I was the conveyor of that information that subsequently changed as we got the results of our investigations, et cetera, um, in the hothouse of a political campaign when President Obama was running for re-election, I became targeted as the messenger just as much as the message was targeted. And it was really the first time in a very brutal and public sense in all my career when I you know, always tried to serve with integrity and excellence that I was accused of being all these things and had a really painful impact on my mother who had been ill in the run-up to this with cancer and a stroke on my daughter who was nine years old. And You on, wrote about a little bit how it impacted your daughter, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, no. Our nine-year-old daughter, some weeks after I had gone on the Sunday shows and at that point, you know, had already been <laughs> like daily looped on cable television as a villain started complaining to me and her dad that she was seeing images of men come at her out of walls. And it would happen in school. Like it would happen in, a, in sleepovers. She was hallucinating. Or that's what we assumed. And we were completely freaked out, obviously. So we took her to Children's Hospital in Washington for a whole battery of tests over several weeks. And they were trying to figure out, you know, was this a brain tumor, which was one likely explanation? Was this some kind of psychosis or schizophrenia, perhaps a vision problem? And they gradually ruled out all the worst-case scenarios, thankfully. And they were left with the conclusion that she was having a stress reaction to what was happening to me. And we had to conclude, me and my husband, that we had made a mistake, obviously, by not understanding that television in the background and all that she was absorbing and couldn't process as a nine-year-old was freaking her out. Now, after many months and after the Benghazi thing died down, the hallucinations went away. She is an extremely happy, healthy, successful, almost 17-year-old. So thankfully, it didn't have a, a permanent impact. But I tell that story because I think it's important for people to understand that in this politics of personal attack that had become so regular, that the people who actually often suffer are the ones who didn't sign up for it, parents, children. And the kinds of ramifications that they endure can be 
serious. Thankfully, in my case, it wasn't enduring. But, you know, it's just not a game. <laughs> and it, it, it has real world and human consequences. When I think about you growing up in D.C. and growing up around this atmosphere and then working in it, and having this experience, was that the first time that you personally felt how dirty politics can be? was not the first time I realized how dirty politics could be. It was the first time I was the one dirtied up. Sadly, you know, I grew up with kids whose parents went to jail for Watergate. I lived through the Nixon era, and I saw the, the nature of the attacks on President Clinton as a grown-up in his administration. So I've seen sort of Washington go from tough to, to terrible. It came to be that I was, you know, in the middle of the drama rather than watching the drama. At one point, President Obama considered tapping you to become the next Secretary of State. And at a certain point, you withdrew your name from consideration. Around this time, and I don't know whether it was right after this or right before this, your brother, I read, told you you acted like a girl. That's a line that people have heard in many parts of their life. What he meant was that I put everything and everybody before myself, that I didn't, uh, I didn't act in a sort of me first, self-serving so kind of way that guys often mm. do. That's what his point was. He was trying to explain to me that, first of all, by agreeing to go on the shows, I'd put the mission of representing the administration and explaining to the American people and my job and my responsibilities and the team ahead of what my mother had warned me I shouldn't do, which is go on the shows, because she anticipated that, as happened, that I might become a target. He also was saying that, you know, a guy wouldn't think about withdrawing his name from consideration. A guy would be out there advocating for himself and putting pressure on the president through whatever means necessary to have themselves appointed. And I wouldn't do that. One, because I don't think it's right. And this is just my personal thing. And president of the United States gets to pick whoever he wants. He knows me. He knows the other people he's considering. He can make his own judgment. I'm not by nature a self-promoter. And what he was trying to suggest was that there are times when you got to be a bit more like that. So it's a classic story about how guys mm -hmm. in business, they go into the boss, it's the end of the year, they tell the boss all the 10,000 great things they've done, and they say that they deserve a huge bonus, right? And the woman will go in and be very modest and say, I had a good year, but you know, here's where I might have done better, and I think I deserve X, and they're always asking for less. So that was kind of the point he was trying to make. What do you think about that point now, looking back? I understand and agree with what he was trying to advise me. I still think that given my character and temperament, I would struggle with it. So I want to talk about something that's coming up, the holidays. And uh, we're getting a lot of talk in the office about what will come up around the holidays, which is sitting down to a family dinner with a lot of usual political disagreements. How do those conversations go in, in your house? I've got a very conservative son and a progressive daughter and a husband who agrees mostly with me on things. And so we, not even just on Thanksgiving, but whenever the kids are all together with us, we find ourselves often in robust policy and political debates. We're a close family. I love both my kids with all my heart, and I'm proud of them both. But we do have these disagreements, and at times it can be really challenging to navigate. And 
we've had to consciously decide in our own family that we're not going to let our policy and political differences be the factor that causes our family to come unglued. We've worked hard to put, you know, our love and our shared values and our shared interests as a family ahead of those differences, but it's not easy. And as so, we record this, um, the impeachment hearings are underway. Um, <laughs> are you and your son texting about it? No. I actually just saw him earlier in the week, and we had a nice dinner with his dad out at, out at his college, and we got a little bit into impeachment, but we didn't, we're not texting back and forth. What I've found is there's a time and a place for these discussions, and I try to engineer them so that we actually have time to have a more thoughtful conversation. Also, often, I like to do it with him one-on-one. We have a, a kind of a tradition of structuring our discussions and debates when we're trying not to let them get out of control. And so sometimes he'll assign me something to read, and I'll tell him to read this, and then we'll talk about it. Um, and a or much we'll try more civilized to, way than my family. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always mean that every discussion is civilized, I can assure you. <laughs> we have our moments. But what I try to do, if I think it's going to be a contentious discussion, is to you know, do it in a way and in a time when we have time to really hash it out. Looking forward to that conversation in more depth mm-hmm. over Thanksgiving. So we are just about out of time, but not before we go to our favorite segment, the lightning round. It's really going to be difficult. We're going to throw questions at you very quickly. You have to answer as quickly as you can. All right. Good I'll luck. try. Okay. Thank you. Good Bert, luck. Thank you. Just... <laughs> first job. My first job was as a page at age 14 in the U.S. House of Representatives. Wow. Worst job? Probably being a junior foreign policy advisor on the badly losing Dukakis-Benson campaign in 1988. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh, my gosh, probably every day. But for myself, I guess probably when I had to negotiate my book contract. Is negotiating for yourself easier for you since it's part of your job or harder? I'm always better, I think, at negotiating on behalf of our country or negotiating on somebody else's behalf. Um, But I'm not bad at negotiating for myself either. What is the first call you make when you get good news? Now? Mm -hmm. To my husband. What about bad news? To my husband. Worst advice you've been given? I haven't retained the bad advice. (laughs) That's good news. That's good. Okay, we'll give you an easier one. What's the time you cried at work? I mean, more than once. One example was two or three days after the 2016 election, after I'd been bucking up my team and reassuring everybody that we're all patriots and professionals and we'll do our job and we'll affect a responsible transition and blah, blah, blah. And then I had a a moment where I realized that it could be a lot worse than that. But it was in the privacy of my office with actually my husband there. Who's the foreign leader you've most enjoyed working with? Well, there are a number, but the one that I think I have the most admiration um, and affection for was the former Israeli president, Shimon Peres, who I'm really proud to say became a friend. We heard you used to host impromptu dance parties at the U.S. Mission as a way to lighten up the atmosphere. What is your go-to dance song? Oh, I, I love all anything by Stevie Wonder. So sign sealed, anything. But not just, by the way, at the U.N. I did that as national security Are advisor. Are you a good dancer? 
I think so. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is a good place to end. Thank you so much and congratulations on your book. Thank you guys so much. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 